Welcome to Parma Christian Fellowship Church's weekly sermon podcast. All of our sermons are available for listening and download at pcf.church. May God's word enrich you today. Last week we read Jonah chapter 1 verses 1 through 16 and then stopped without reading the last verse. I personally think Jonah 1.17 actually belongs in chapter 2 rather than as the tail, so to speak, of chapter 1. So today we're reading from Jonah 1.17 through chapter 2, verse 10. Now, the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. From inside the fish, Jonah prayed to the Lord his God. He said, In my distress, I called to the Lord, and he answered me. From deep in the realm of the dead, I called for help. And you listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths, into the very heart of the seas, and the currents swirled about me. All your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I have been banished from your sight. Yet I will look again toward your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed was wrapped around my head. To the roots of the mountains I sank down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, Lord my God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord, and my prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. But I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you. What I have vowed, I will make good. I will say... Salvation comes from the Lord. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Sweet. A New Testament reading, Luke chapter 18, just verses 15 and 16. People were also bringing babies to Jesus for him to place his hands on them. When the disciples saw this, they rebuked them. But Jesus called the children to him and said, Let the little children come to me. Do not hinder them. For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. 
Our sermon series in four episodes, or probably five with an epilogue, is called Angry at God. The Incredible Power of Forgiveness. There are little oval tags on the tables. You can always take one of those. They're sticky. Put them on your car windshield, not in your view. Put them on your Bible. Stick them on your forehead. Do whatever you want to do. You can even take more than one if you want to. Today is episode two. I'm calling it belly prayer. Belly prayer. I do not fish. I don't do it. I don't like to fish. I don't like the feel of a fish. It probably goes back to when I was a very small child. My grandparents owned a cottage on the reservoir at East Otto, Massachusetts. We would drive there every summer, spend three or four weeks. There were always fishing poles in the back room that had hooks on them and fishing line, and they were just kind of in a corner. And one time when I was maybe seven or eight, it was within the time frame that I can actually remember the story, somebody in the family was tired of the five of us children rampaging around the cottage and said, why don't you go out and go fishing? So I grabbed the fishing pole, first time I had ever recalled doing that in my life, and I went out on the breakwater, and I shot the line into the water and saw it plunk in, and I sat back there for what seemed to me to be several hours of fishing. It was probably three or four minutes. I got nothing. My older brother, Peter, who was wont to cause me great emotional harm and laugh at me at every possible turn, came out and said, have you caught any fish? And I said, no. And right then I was reeling the line back in, and he said, well, that's because you don't have a worm on the hook. And he may have had a few other choice comments that went along with that, but he told that story and had everyone laugh at me for not putting a worm on the hook. Why would a six- or seven-year-old kid think of putting a worm on the hook, and where would I get a worm from anyway? I just thought you threw the hook into the water, the fish would jump on the hook, you pull it out, you throw the fish back, the same stupid fish is going to jump on the hook again, and it would be fun. I really didn't see how, but that's what I thought. So years went by, I did not fish in between. When I was in seminary, I was 21, 22 years old, and I met a missionary candidate who was going to Japan as a United Methodist missionary. His name was Neil Hicks. Neil Hicks was from the South, so he had a very strong Southern accent. He was tall, maybe six foot two or six foot three, super blonde hair, super blue eyes, jutting jaw, and his wife was a Japanese woman who was maybe five feet tall. She was a phenomenal cook, Japanese cook. I mean, the kind of knives things, take fish, throw them up in the air, and then falls in the pan and cooks, that kind of cook. So Neil and I went fishing in the Kentucky River. Did I mention I don't fish, that I don't like fishing? 
So Neil and I had gone out the night before to the Wilmore golf course. When the dew falls, the worms come out of the ground, and he could catch them on the greens. They come, they just lay their night crawlers, big, huge thing. Threw them in the can. We probably had 100, 150 worms. We went fishing this little 16-foot boat that he had. He would throw his line in, catch a fish. He must have caught 200 fish. I caught two. After a very frustrating time frame, in which I really didn't get much, he said, put a Jonah on your hook. I said, what? He goes, get a really big, fat night crawler, biggest one you can find, and then thread it onto the hook. Start at one end. Oh, yes, disgusting. Thread it on and put a Jonah on there. I said, what is a Jonah? Is a kind of worm? He said, no. Jonah was fish bait. Don't you remember the story from the Bible? And he called the worms, the big, fat, juicy ones, he called them fish bait. Jonah 1.17 is kind of the wrap-up of the initial part of the story. Jonah has taken no responsibility for what's going on on the boat, running away from God, telling God no, arguing with all the fish, lying about who he was, what he believed, where he was going. I mean, he just, he lies by omission. He lies by commission. Eventually, they say, what are we supposed to do? We've lost our cargo. We're in danger of losing a boat. All of us are going to lose our lives. Jonah doesn't say, I'll take care of it. It's my fault and jump overboard. He says to them, you guys throw me overboard. The guilt will be on your shoulders. You'll be the ones caused my death by throwing me into the ocean. I'm not doing it myself. What a wimp. What a coward. I mean, Jonah has all kinds of issues in his life, but this is just a summary of it. And God appointed a fish. All right, let's talk about the elephant in the room or the gorilla. You use that expression, what you mean is something really, really big. Let's talk about the fish in the room. This particular verse, this one verse, has created more angst, more argument, more conflict about biblical validity than probably any other verse in the Bible. I have had countless conversations. I've been a Christian almost 50 years. I have had countless conversations conversations with people who say, starting out, you know, I don't believe the Bible at all. You don't believe the Bible at all? No. Because it's just a bunch of stories, things that could never have happened. Oh, like the resurrection of Jesus? Nobody ever refers to that one. First on the list, almost always, like God is going to make a fish big enough to swallow a person and he gets to ride around for three days. I mean, where did he go to the bathroom while he was there? I mean, I've had this conversation. Have you had this conversation? I've had this conversation with people, especially people who don't go to church and don't want to go to church and don't have anything to do with religion. They don't believe in the Bible because it's full of stories and myths and fables. And I don't, I'm married to an old wife, so I'm not going to say that. But 
things that just aren't really possible. They're not even true. And then I have been in conversations with people who bend over backwards to prove there had to have been a fish. They have found baleen whales with stomachs big enough for a person to stand up in, and then there are shark fish, and, and then go on and on and on and on, trying to prove what is improvable. It is a singular event. No one is ever recommended when you're on a cruise, jump overboard and God will send a submarine fish that will pick you up and carry you to safety. This is not a strategy for surviving the ocean. It is a singular event that is not repeated. It's not even repeatable. So what do you do with the fish story from the book of Jonah. You can take it and defend it as absolutely literal. That is exactly what happened. There was a fish big enough. Jonah crawled in or was swallowed inside. He stood up. He floated around for three days. Eventually, the fish deposited him on the shore again. He could start walking towards Nineveh. You can take it as absolutely literal. You can take it as parabolic. It's a parable. It's an entire constructed event that brings about a teaching concerning the nature and character of God. You can even take it as a myth and that somebody just made it up and put it in there because it would sound really fun and it was fun to tell the story. Me personally, I don't care how you take it because that's not the point of the book of Jonah. When you begin to argue and defend and debate and get all concerned about how could a fish be big enough to swallow a human being, carry him around for three days, and throw him up on the shore, you're intentionally avoiding what the book of Jonah is actually about. We are invited and asked to believe in God. But who is he? Who is that God? What is he like? What is his character? What are his his values of, of justice? What are his principles of life? When we argue about the fish, we end up missing all of that. And I've asked countless people who get onto the, I don't believe in the Bible because of stories like Jonah and the whale or fish or whatever. And you've seen the pictures, Jonah on the spew coming out of the top of the whale. How do you get from the stomach to the lungs? On and on and on. And I've said to people, have you actually read the book of Jonah? No. So you're just not believing it from prejudice? Well, I don't know. Maybe I should read it. So that's what we're doing. William Jennings Bryan was a three-time presidential candidate for the Democratic Party. 1896, 1900, 1904. He lost all three times. 20 years later, he was the prosecutor in the Scopes Monkey Trial, at which a school teacher in Kansas was put, or in, in Kentucky, was put on trial for teaching Darwin, Darwinian evolution. It was against the law in Kentucky to do that. And this school teacher was going to be fined because he was teaching that human beings came from monkeys. 
1925, that really became the focal issue, the, the tipping point in how people in the United States understood the meaning of Scripture and the interpretation of it in the public court. William Jennings Bryan was the prosecutor, and he won the trial. He won. The teacher was found guilty of teaching Darwinian evolution, which was illegal, and a fine was set up. He appealed, and it was overturned later. But William Jennings Bryan won the day at the beginning. Somebody said to him, so where do you get your beliefs from? And he said, from the Bible. And in a, an interview, somebody said to him, so you even believe things like a fish could swallow a person? And Williams Jennings, William Jennings Bryan said, if the Bible said that a man swallowed a whale, I would believe that as well. No matter what the Bible says, I am going to believe it. And the, the contest became over absolute literalism versus the true nature of Scripture. A very, very interesting moment in our history. Jonah became fish bait. Don't string him on a hook. The fish picked him up. But let's get to the things that are important. Jonah chapter 2, verse 9. He's fish food. He's in the fish's stomach. He's not being held there or carried there because he is angry at God. He is an angry man, but that's not why he's there. He's not being punished for being angry. He is not being punished for running away from God and refusing to do God's will in preaching to the Ninevites. This is not God saying, I am going to punish you in the belly of a sea creature. And you're going to have some time out to just think about how wrong you are. That's not what this is about. He is not being hemmed in because of the excuses that he made And how he describes himself in relationship to God Almighty. That's not what this is about. This is God showing his incredible grace to a man who doesn't want it. When Jonah says to the seaman in the first chapter, throw me overboard, he has absolutely no expectation that God is going to rescue him. None. This is it. He doesn't want to commit suicide by jumping over himself. He wants somebody else to be responsible for all the events that happen. And the amazing thing about the story is, just as Lori testified earlier, God shows incredible grace when no one asks him to. When we're not prepared for that to happen, when we have no clue as to what is happening around us, God is already acting out of his gracious and powerful nature to make sure that the right outcomes occur. 
Jonah is a man who prays from within the belly of the fish. This is his belly prayer. But his belly prayer is absolutely fascinating. If you go back through this story, and instead of getting caught up in the fish, read what happens and how he prays in this chapter. He is so amazingly selfish, almost narcissistic. Everything in his prayer is about him. How bad it is for him. How terrible things have happened to him. How horrible it is for him. How far down into the ocean he went. How much the seaweed wrapped around his head. On and on and on. Every once in a while he throws in a nice thing about God. But the vast majority of Jonah 2 verses 1 through 9 is look how bad it is for me. I am such a victim here. He has no concern about the Ninevites. He has no concern about the seamen. He has no concern about anybody else other than his own particular plight. It's a fascinating prayer. The belly prayer has the right words, but it has no heart. Listen to what he says. In my distress, I called to the Lord. Now, I want to back up, and a lot of this material is in the videos I'm doing on the Bible study part. But there's one vital aspect that I want you to be aware of in these messages. The key word, singular word in the book of Jonah is a Hebrew word, Kara, kof, resh, aleph. Aleph is a, sounds like an A, but it's actually a silent letter that usually carries an A. Three consonants, Q, R, and A. That's the basis of to call out. But it doesn't mean merely to yell or to pray or to beseech. The best translation is probably to demand. When you demand from someone, you expect them to respond immediately. It is something that is urgent. And you are laying it out there, not expecting them to think about it, not expecting them to ponder, negotiate, figure it out over time, count their options, and then maybe tomorrow or later they'll act. A demand requires an immediate response. That's what kara is. Immediate. God says to Jonah in chapter 1, go to Nineveh and kara to the Ninevites. It's translated preach, but it is Call out to them with a demand that requires them to respond immediately. When the seamen are caught and they've thrown their cargo overboard and they cry out to the Lord, not their God, but Jonah's God, it is Kara. Jonah says, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to do it. I'm not helping, I'm not responding, I'm not going to Nineveh, I am not going to kara to those people, I'm not going to do it. But now, 
when he's in the belly of the fish. In the second verse, it says, I called to the Lord. Kara. Now I'm crying out. Now I want God to act. Now I don't want God to think about this and delay a little bit and negotiate with me. I am crying out. I am demanding that God answer me. And, of course, he answered me. I'm stuck in the belly of a fish, but that's just the way God works sometimes. From deep in the realm of the dead Sheol, from hell, I called for help. You listened to my cry. You hurled me into the depths. He did it himself. Now he's blaming God for his situation. Into the very heart of the sea and the currents swirled around me. Your waves and breakers swept over me. I said, I've been banished from God's sight. But I'll look again towards your holy temple. The engulfing waters threatened me. The deep surrounded me. Seaweed wrapped around my head. I hate that feeling when you walk in the water and it gets on your feet. You know that feeling? wrapped around his head. I mean, he's being as slimy as he can be. To the roots of the mountains, I sank all the way down. The earth beneath barred me in forever. But you, God, brought my life up from the pit. When my life was ebbing away, I remembered you, Lord. My prayer rose to you, to your holy temple. Then he has this one odd statement. Those who cling to worthless idols... Turn away from God's love for them. What are you going to do with it? End of statement. He doesn't even care. He has no concern at all. Just a random statement. It's the right words with no heart. But I, with shout, shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. And then comes the one verse that virtually every commentary seizes upon. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. I will say is not in the Hebrew. Comes is not in the Hebrew either. This last expression is two words. I have them up there in Hebrew, in transliterated Hebrew. Yeshuata la Yahweh. Go back one. Yeshua ya Yahweh. Salvation to God. No, he's not making a statement. He's not discovering anything. It's almost, it's the kind of expression that virtually every politician who finishes a speech says, God bless America. What? Where'd that come from? Because that's what you say when you're done with a political speech. God bless. That's what Jonah's actually saying. Yeshua Ta is from Jesus, means salvation. Yeshua Ta, Yahweh. Salvation to God. He'll deal with it. I don't know. It's a throw your hands up expression. The thing that's so amazing about this entire prayer is that Jonah has some of the right language, but he is so absorbed in his own situation, he cannot see what God is actually doing. He cannot see who God actually is. And here's the real scary part of this chapter. 
He doesn't care. He doesn't care who God is. He doesn't care what God is trying to do and how God is inviting him to be a part of God's agenda for a broken and damaged world. He doesn't really want any part of it, which is really saying, I don't want any part of God. So the conclusion of chapter 2 is this very odd verse, the fish makes another appearance. And it says, and the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. Now, I wondered about that. Do fish actually vomit? I have no idea. I don't like fish. I don't fish normally. I don't know if they vomit up the worms that they got stuck in their... I have no idea. Some of you actually might know the answer to that question. But the writer of this story picked a most fascinating word to conclude the role of the fish. Go ahead, Paul, and click. On the left-hand side is the verb in Hebrew script for to demand or cry out or preach or call or to make a request that requires an immediate response, used nine times in these verses, kara. The word on the right is kava, or kora. If you take the resh from the middle of the left one and shorten it, it becomes a vav. The letters are so similar that every Hebrew person reading this at the beginning would say, <clears throat> I get it. Jonah won't vomit out the words, but the fish is going to vomit him out. God gets his entire creation, the seas, the mountains, the idol-worshiping seamen, the boat, and even the fish to be engaged in his redemption of mankind. This word, it's koa, the V is a carrier of the letter O, and kara are visually so similar, it cannot be a mistake. And it's a violent word. When God is writing to Israel through Jeremiah, I think, he says, I am going to spew you out of my mouth. Your, your worship is so false. You are so disobedient. I cannot bear to have you in my presence, and I will vomit you out. Is incredibly aggressive word. And here in the book of Jonah, God says, I've carried you as far as I'm carrying you. But this is it, Jonah. Not decide whether you're going to obey me. Decide if you even want to know me. Do you want to know my heart? Do you want to know why I'm doing what I'm doing? Do you want to participate with me in bringing about a resolution of broken relationships? between human beings and the God who has made them. 
So we get to the end of the belly prayer, and we are now set for what God has asked, demanded, instructed, guided, called Jonah to do. He is a man who is responding with no heart in it. Before we get into the last two chapters in the next couple of weeks, this also becomes a message for us right now. There are times when God asks you to be involved, to be engaged, to connect in, to step up, to open your mouth or to shut it because of his character, because of who God is. And you might actually even have the right words, but no heart in it. It's not about technical obedience, finding out in the Ten Commandments what are you supposed to do and how do you do it. The 639 laws of the Old Testament, the Beatitudes, the teachings of Jesus. What he says to his followers, Jesus does, is not follow the rules, which you can kind of do half-heartedly. He says, follow me. Let's walk together. You may not be perfect at it. You may not even know what to do. That doesn't bother God a bit. He invites you. He demands. He expects. He engages. He connects. He draws. He influences. He encourages. Not because the actions are the tipping point, but it is his character and his relationship with you that he desires so much. In the parable of Jonah, he was carried by this monstrous fish because God would not let him drown in his own consequences. He will not let you drown in your consequences either. But he will provide a way that you can get your feet back on solid ground and not decide, okay, all right, I'll do what you want me to do, but to discover who he is. And not only his heart for the entire world, but his heart for you. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, you draw us you hem us in. You open the door. You'll use other people to throw us overboard. You will use the circumstances of the entire universe to reveal yourself. The objective is not to get us to be little robots doing the right thing all the time, saying the right words, never swearing, never doing the wrong thing. But to discover your heart your character, your incredible love, your amazing grace, your delightful provision. And as the seas can envelop a person even to their death, You carry us and refresh us and give us life in the midst of it. Because that's who you are. So help us come to you.
the real you. In Jesus' name we pray.